Well, we are beginning challenge number three this morning. We're making our way through 1 Corinthians and discussing six church challenges. And we've already discussed the first two, the challenges of division and the challenges of immorality. And we come to the third challenge that churches face, uh, the challenge of marriage. And I think it's uh, interesting and somewhat humorous that we take up the topic of marriage, and specifically the angle we're going to look at it this morning, on the day before Valentine's Day. So make of that what you will. That was not the plan, but it was obviously God's providential unfolding of how the series got planned, which is kind of humorous. As I was thinking about it, um, how did Valentine's Day begin? Or as some of our beloved brothers and sisters who are single call it, Single Awareness Day. How did that begin? There were at least three Valentines, and we don't know all that much about any of them. And whether the day is attributed to one or to all of them, who knows. But the most popular story centers around a priest um, who performed illegal marriages. The story goes that the Roman Emperor Claudius II imposed a ban on marriages in order to boost his army. Only single men had to enter the army, and too many men were draft-dodging by getting married. So Valentinus, though, in an effort to protect the sacredness of Christian marriage performed secret marriages. And when he got caught, he was sentenced to death. And while he awaited his execution, he was showered with many notes from young couples extolling the virtues of love over war. So it seems like John Lennon didn't invent the slogan, make love, not war, after all. These notes, if they ever existed at all, were supposedly the first Valentines named after him. So poor old Valentinus was executed February 14th, 269, which was a bloody end for a man who was marked by such love, especially for God's institution of marriage. That's the way one story goes. A second story um, was founded after a priest named Valentinus again, but who found himself in prison for helping Christians, and according to legend... He fell in love with the daughter of his jailer and sent her notes signed from your Valentine. And then there's a third St. Valentine who was the Bishop of Terni, who was also martyred in yet another Valentinus, a second century Roman teacher, although not a Christian himself, who argued that marriage was central to Christian teaching. So it was in 469 when Valentine was given a feast day in hopes of replacing February's pagan feast of love and fertility with a theme of Christian love and martyrdom. And judging by today's customs, I'd say that all of these schemes weren't altogether successful. <laughs> Regardless of the origins of Valentine's Day, it is good that we reflect on the goodness of God to us in the gift of marriage, and specifically the goodness of God in the gift of marital intimacy, which is what we're going to talk about today. And since we have many young ears in the audience, we will try to keep it as PG as possible. So we're going to look at the provision for marital intimacy, first of all. So the Corinthians were in turmoil as a church and as a culture. We've seen this throughout the letter. The immorality that was present in the Corinthian culture had begun to seep into the Corinthian church. And so Paul begins verse 1 of chapter 7 by addressing the matters that the Corinthians had written to him about. 
Obviously, these churches had exchanged numerous letters with each other. Sorry, the church with, at Corinth had exchanged numerous letters with the Apostle Paul. Some of them we have, some of them do we don't. In fact, we have two of them in our Bible, two of them we don't. Obviously, the Holy Spirit felt like those didn't need to be included, but these two, for the sake of the church throughout all ages, would need to be included in the Bible. So, He's going to, you're going to see this come up a number of times throughout the rest of 1 Corinthians where Paul is saying, okay, about the matter you wrote, I'm going to respond now. About this matter that you wrote me about, I'm going to respond now. And this is one of the issues that the Corinthians had written to him about that they wanted his take on. And what they wrote was, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, it seems there were two opposite errors that the Corinthian church was facing. The first one we've been considering the last couple of weeks. We might call it the error of libertinism. That is, as we saw last week, in the name of keeping grace and obedience unconnected and the body and soul unconnected, they had adopted some sort of view of the Christian life where their bodies had no consequences for their souls. These Corinthians had visited prostitutes without shame, But Paul reminds them that instead of viewing their bodies as less important than their souls, God intended to raise our bodies and reunite them with our souls. He also reminded them and us last week that instead of visiting temples with with the purpose of picking up prostitutes, you should recognize that you are the temple of God and that the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Instead of becoming one flesh... With someone who isn't your wife you should, or husband, you should recognize that you're joined to the Lord, one flesh with him. And instead of uniting your members to a prostitute, you should recognize that you're united to Christ. And instead of going to those temples to purchase a prostitute out of temporary slavery, you must understand that you've been bought with a price and the blood of Christ has ransomed you out of your spiritual adultery and physical immorality to glorify God in your body. That was Paul's point last week. They're not their own. They're bought with a price. Don't do this, Paul says. That was the libertine view of sexual immorality. But that wasn't the only challenge facing the people of God here in Corinth. Obviously, by chapter 7, verse 1. Because it shifts. No longer are they talking about sinful sexual indulgence, but they're talking about ascetic avoidance. So the second error was asceticism. They almost swung the pendulum to the opposite end. And saying, okay, well, since we're living in such an immoral culture, and since the the church is being affected with such immorality, it's better not to do any of this and swing to the other end. Now, this is a similar disdain for the body, except in the opposite direction. Some Greeks, including Corinthians, in rejecting immorality, rejected marriage and sex altogether. And instead of indulging in immorality, this second group had become overly ascetic. That is, believing that married people should not have marital intimacy at all, but should remain celibate. Some Corinthian Christians appear to have adopted the view that sexual relations of any kind, even within marriage, should be avoided. In fact, it seems from the rest of chapter 7, they were not only encouraging that, but they were encouraging people not to get married at all, and even exhorting married people to get divorced. Now, Paul makes it clear that this is not to be the case in the church in Corinth, as we'll see in the few verses that we're going to consider this morning. But he also makes it clear in another place. 
1 Timothy chapter 1, or sorry, chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, Paul addresses this sort of ascetic thinking when he says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences have been seared. You might think, oh, what's going to come now? I mean, there's going to come these days in which people are going to teach this demonic doctrine. They are going to devote themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching. Oh, this is going to be good. This is going to be bad. Notice the form this demonic doctrine takes. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving for it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. You see, there are two ways to teach demonic doctrine, so to speak. One would be libertinism, just indulge, do whatever you want. And the other would be rejecting God-created things in the way that God has created them. So we share a lot in common as a culture with the Corinthians. We live in a culture with lots of confusion about sexual realities. The Corinthian church had some who were into hedonism and others who were into asceticism. But one wing saw really wild issues on sexuality and the other wing had a negative view of sex, promoting celibacy. You had the hedonists saying all expressions are valid today. If it feels right, just do it. And the ascetic who says, well, that's all dirty. We shouldn't even talk about it. So in response to both the licentious who indulged in sexual immorality and the ascetics who forbade sexual immorality, Paul tells us, in God's, tells us about God's provision in verse 2 where he says, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Sex isn't a god like the hedonists or licentious Christians, professing Christians made it in Corinth, nor is it gross like the ascetics made it. It's a gift of God meant to be stewarded for his glory. So what's clear from this passage is that one man, one woman, monogamous heterosexual marriage is the God-given context for the righteous expression of sexual intimacy. God is pro-sex. He created it. He designed it. God's word does not frown on the sexual union of a man and a woman or view it as a necessary evil just to get babies in the world. Instead, Scripture tells us that sex is good and even holy when it takes place in the proper context, which is the context of one flesh marriage of husband and wife. So we see God affirming here the goodness of the sexual relationship between spouses. God designed marriage as the place for the expression of human sexuality. Sex within marriage has both relational and spiritual benefits. Notice the language he uses in verse 7. Paul makes it clear where he says, I wish that all were as, my, as, my, as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God. Gift from God. Now, to be clear, marriage is not the only gift that God gives. He also gives the gift of celibacy or singleness by which a person might live in sexual purity without a spouse. Marriage is not inherently better than singleness. Singleness is not to be despised in the church. 
And unmarried people should not feel like they're second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. They are brothers and sisters, joint heirs with Christ, no matter what their marital status is. Paul makes it clear that singleness without sexual intimacy or marriage with sexual intimacy are both gifts from God. God doesn't require all adults to marry, even though it's the general expectation that many will. Singleness is a viable, respectable option that Paul, in fact, prefers himself. And we're going to spend a whole sermon, Lord willing, in two weeks discussing that very topic of singleness because it's dealt with at length in the second half of this chapter. But Paul makes it clear right here that his wish is that others would join him in his singleness. Now what Paul says here is countercultural because Roman culture actually viewed singleness with suspicion. It had expected adults to marry, even penalizing men who were aged 25 to 60 or women who were ages 20 to 50 if they did not marry, including those who were divorced or widowed. So in verse 8, Paul speaks of unmarried and widows. He says in verse 8, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. Now, this verse teaches that being unmarried and being a widow appear to be distinct. Each of the four uses of the term unmarried, which is only used here in 1 Corinthians, refers to those who were formerly married, but who are presently single and not widowed. They are divorced. Verse 11 indicates that the unmarried are distinguished from widows, either single by death or they were never married to begin with. So Paul uses the phrase, as I am, and that could mean, as some scholars and Bible commentators take it, that Paul himself was a widower. Now, he could have been single as well. He doesn't really lay out much about his pre-conversion married life if he had one. Perhaps some commentators have suggested that Paul was married, but then he was converted and his wife left him or deserted him. That doesn't seem to be entirely likely um, from what we read at the rest of Paul, but it's really not an issue that is a huge issue on whether or not um, his words here should be taken um, seriously because obviously the Holy Spirit inspired his words. But nevertheless, I'm inclined to think that Paul himself was a widower. It's, It's somewhat unlikely that a good Pharisee like he was not be married, although it is possible, but it's likely that he wasn't divorced as a result of being a good Pharisee, but rather, at some point, his wife had passed away. But you don't have to take that view. He could have been single all his life. We're not sure. So that's the provision, God's provision for marital intimacy. He's placed it within the context of one man, one woman, heterosexual, monogamous marriage. We have to say all that today to make sure we understand what we're talking about when we talk about marriage. Secondly, the purpose of marital intimacy. The purpose of marital marital intimacy. Now, what's the purpose for marital intimacy that God gives us in these first nine verses? Well, he says it in a couple of different ways, and I want to show you in the passage. Look at the first part of chapter 7, verse 2. Verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality. Each man should have his own wife, each woman her own husband. He says it a second way at the end of verse 5. So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And then he says it one more time in verse 9. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry 
for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, Paul clearly, in 1 Corinthians 7, understands the purpose of marital intimacy to be for protection of the husband and the wife. But before we get more into this, I want to say a word about the broader purposes of marriage for people. Lest we think that protection is the only reason to protect us from immorality, that that's the only reason God gave marriage, we need to remember that God gave marriage before sin ever came into the world. Okay, Marriage is a good institution created by God before the fall. It, it was not a, now, of course, it's affected by sin, but it is not created by sin. As a result of God's good design for men and women, he created marriage. But, and the Bible offers a bigger portrait than just protection as the purpose of marriage. In fact, marital intimacy has been given to us for many reasons. We see in the first few chapters of Genesis, before the fall, that marriage is for partnership. It's for the man and the woman to come together to fulfill the mission of God together. In that point of human history, it was to take dominion over the earth and fill it with people, which gets into our second purpose, which is procreation, the creation of more people. So partnership and procreation are built in to marriage, but marital intimacy is also given, according to the Bible, for both pleasure and for the public good. And then finally, marital intimacy is a portrait of God's relationship with his people and Christ with his church, according to Ephesians 5. Just as husband and wife become one flesh in marriage, so God in Christ has become one flesh with us as his people. But for the purpose of this letter, Paul is singling out one dominant purpose for marital intimacy that applies to their situation there and then and applies to our situation in many ways here and now. So how does he describe this protective purpose playing out? I want you to see this. First of all, there's a burning with passion that Paul talks about. You see that in verse 9? It's better to marry than to burn with passion. So there's this desire for intimacy, physical intimacy, that is created, I think, by virtue of being made in the image of God. So there's a, there's a burning with passion, which leads to, Paul, in Paul's understanding, should lead to marriage. This burning with passion, if not resolved in marriage, will lead, according to the Apostle Paul, to a lack of self-control. If they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, verse 9. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that a burning with passion can't be met with self-control. In fact, it should, even within marriage. You should be able to control, we should be able to control our passions. But he's talking about an overwhelming desire that simply will not go away. Paul makes clear that Satan will prey upon us for this lack of self-control in order to tempt us. He says again in verse 5, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now we have to remember, he's not talking to mature Christians here. All right? He's talking to, as he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, babes in Christ. People who are still learning the elementary elements of the faith. And so 
We don't need to think of people as walking around with raging hormones all the time, can't have any manner of self-control, even though we might think that from sometimes living among our culture in present day. But nevertheless, people can have passion, people can have self-control. But the, but the reality is, is that there is a strong burning with passion that if not resolved in marriage, will likely lead to a life marked by periods or dominated in some ways by a lack of self-control, which would lead into sexual immorality. Again, verse 2, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality. So here's the kind of step that Paul's thinking. Paul's thinking you've got people burning with passion. You've got marriage as the context in which that should be worked out. And in between that, if it doesn't end there, it's going to result in lack of self-control, which may yield to a vulnerability to, to temptation by Satan, which would lead to immorality. That's, that's the way he's thinking. That's the way it's playing out. So he says, it's better to marry so we can skip all this stuff and get, 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 get this solved. Okay? So you're not vulnerable. You're not lacking self-control. You're not being tempted by Satan, and you're not committing immorality. So that's, his, that's the protective purpose of marital intimacy that he has in mind here. So the marital intimacy is designed to protect us from Satan's temptation through the provision of both a wife and a husband. A husband for the wife, a wife for the husband. Now, we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about number three, which is the dominant instruction that Paul gives in this, in this passage, which is the posture of husband and wife in marital intimacy, the posture in marital intimacy. How, how are we to go about this? We looked at kind of the, the why and the what, right? The what was, okay, what is God's... Provision for marital intimacy, one man, one woman, monogamous, heterosexual, lifelong marriage. Okay, what, what's its purpose? It's protective. Okay, now what's the posture to be? Understanding the, 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 the provision of God and giving it, understanding the purpose of God and giving it, now how do we go about wielding it in a God-honoring, God-glorifying way? And this is important because if... Marital intimacy is pictured like a burning passion, then we, we need to be thinking carefully about it. If it's a strong desire, which it is, then we need to make sure God's word is informing that desire and shaping that desire, and especially how we relate to our husband or wife on the basis of that desire. Huge implications there. So we're going to talk about those implications as we go. Now, most of these first seven or nine verses deal with the way in which we go about pursuing marital intimacy. While Paul spends time, as we've seen, addressing God's provision and God's purpose, we now come to his instruction regarding our posture. How is marital intimacy designed to function? And Paul's teaching on marriage here is extraordinary. He says that the husband and wife should give, according to verse 3, each other their conjugal rights, and each has a right to these rights, and each has an obligation to help the other. So both spouses receive the joy and pleasure of healthy marital intimacy. Husbands and wives should view the marriage bed in such a way that each spouse approaches intimacy from a posture of self-giving service to the other. So what 
are the components of this self-giving service. I want to talk about three of them. First of all, mutual satisfaction. Mutual satisfaction. Look at verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. The emphasis in the text is on the giver's responsibility, not the receiver's rights. And I'm fearful that a lot of marriage teaching teaches the opposite. Sex is not about getting your wife or husband to do what you want him or her to do or don't want them to do. It's about giving yourself to your spouse. Notice Paul says in verse 3 that the husband is to think about how he can give to his wife. And the wife is to think about how she can give to her husband. The one flesh union of husband and wife is meant to be patterned after the one flesh union of Christ and the church. And how's that accomplished? Mutual self-giving. Christ gives himself up for the church. The church gives itself up for Christ. That's the pattern. That's the one flesh reality. That's how God caused and created sex to function. Mutual self-giving. And unless mutual self-giving is taking place, dysfunction will take place. Christ himself gave himself up for us that we might give ourselves up to him. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. The love of Christ constrains us, for we are convinced that one died for all, therefore all died, and we who live should no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and was raised on our behalf. You see, Christ gave himself for us, we give ourselves up for Christ. Same thing. In marriage, specifically in the one flesh union, Mark Dever says, this mutual owning shows up in that the sexual relationship in marriage is a way to give love. Our greatest satisfaction, even sexually, will normally come in bringing satisfaction to our spouse. In fact, the more both spouses work for the satisfaction of the receiver, the greater will be the satisfaction of the giver. So brothers and sisters, this kind of recalibrates some of our thinking about marital intimacy that I think is important. Instead of thinking men want sex, we should start thinking people want sex. Instead of thinking a husband has a need for physical release through marital intimacy, we should think God made sex to be intimate physically and emotionally for both partners. And so both the, both the husband and the wife have a need for marital intimacy, even if they feel it differently. Instead of thinking she has emotional needs, he has sexual needs, how about thinking you both have physical, emotional, and sexual needs, even if you feel them greater to one degree or another? Instead of thinking women need to meet men's sexual needs, how about each spouse should meet each other's needs? Instead of thinking wives don't experience sexuality like men do, think each spouse has sexual needs even if they look different from my spouse. This is the sort of thinking that Paul is calling upon Christians to have. Mutual satisfaction. Secondly, exclusive devotion. Exclusive devotion. Look at verse 4. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. You see this mutuality? Now, when it comes to marital, marital intimacy, it is egalitarian. You scared of that word? We shouldn't be scared of all forms of egalitarianism. Where the Bible's egalitarian, we should be egalitarian. 
where the Bible's complementarian, we should be complementarian. And here, in terms of marital intimacy, it's very egalitarian because no one possesses greater superiority or authority over the other. They both have authority over each other. <laughs> and their bodies both belong to each other. That's Paul's point, is that this is on a level playing field. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but the husband's body does not belong to him alone either. Because husband and wife become one flesh in marriage, the husband surrenders the rights over his body to his wife and vice versa. Now, Paul does not mean some sort of absolute authority or absolute surrender. He's not giving a spouse authority to demand sexual acts that are sinful, painful, or demeaning, or saying that a spouse has an obligation to give into such demands. Because the whole context of Paul's instruction here is not you owe me, but I owe you. Right? That's the whole deal here. I owe you what you have in marriage, not you owe me what I have in marriage. You see how that's contra-gospel? When, when couples start getting into that, well, 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 she, she won't. She, well, he, he, he won't. It's all backwards. Where's the self-giving? Where's the mutual self-giving? If, they're not committed, if you're not committed to this, it's going to bring all kinds of dysfunction. It doesn't matter if it's 80% here or 20% there. It's are you dying to yourself? And if both husband and wife are Christians who are already crucified with Christ and dead with him and raised with Christ, then giving themselves up to their spouse should be a pretty small thing because they've already given themselves up for Christ and he's their owner and he calls the shots in their life. As Denny Burke says, this text is not about coercing one spouse to do what he or she does not want to do. It's about a husband and wife giving themselves freely to one another. It's not about insisting on one's authority, but about being a servant to one's spouse, end quote. By saying that each has authority over the body of the other, Paul is emphasizing the teaching of verse 3, that sexuality is not first for oneself, but for the other. We use our authority like Christ does, as a tool for servanthood and blessing. How does Jesus use his authority in your life? He serves you and blesses you. And that is the way we are to imitate him. And this is extremely countercultural. They would have heard this and been unshocked by the first part and very shocked by the second part. Andy Nacelli in his commentary on 1 Corinthians gives some of the cultural background. He says, quote, A pagan husband in the ancient Roman world would generally sleep with his wife only to procreate while pursuing sex with concubines and prostitutes for pleasure. One Roman writer of the time is representative of how the Roman culture perceived marital sex. He writes, this is in the second century, this is what living with a woman as one's wife means, to have children by her and to introduce the sons to the members of the clan and to betroth the daughters to husbands. Mistresses we keep for the sake of pleasure, concubines for the daily care of our persons, and wives to bear us legitimate children to be faithful guardians of our households. How chauvinistic is that? One evil tradition on wedding days in ancient Rome was to remind the bride that her husband still loved her even though he was preparing to commit adultery against her and that he was legitimately satisfying his sexual passions. R.C. Sproul says, These are remarkable verses that reveal to be viewpoints that are far ahead of their time. A healthy perception of the woman's sexuality and an understanding of the complete equality that exists between a man and a woman 
in the most intimate area of their relationship. The scripture gives no support whatsoever to the notion that sexual relations are solely at the direction of and for the enjoyment of the husband, end quote. Paul stresses complete equality in sexual relationships. Neither male nor female should seek dominance or autonomy. So brothers, again, and sisters, this affects the way we're thinking. Instead of thinking all men struggle with lust, it's every man's battle, as one book says, why not think lust is a battle that many people struggle with, but in Christ we are no longer slaves to sin. We've been bought with a price. We are indwelt by the Spirit, and the authority of my body is not my own, but belongs exclusively to God and my spouse. Instead of thinking men are visually stimulated, think people are visually stimulated. Some more than others, but being visually stimulated does not make you captive to lust. I think Pharaoh's, or Potiphar's wife was pretty visually stimulated too. We don't need these reductionistic cultural categories that don't help us move this conversation forward. Let's just stick with the Bible. Instead of thinking the reason why men watch pornography is because they're not getting enough sex at home, how about let's think it's not my spouse's responsibility to keep you away from pornography, it's yours. Instead of thinking men are lured into affairs because of sexual deprivation at home, think I have responsibility to stay faithful to my wife because my body belongs to her. Regardless of what's happening in the marriage, my body belongs to her. I will get help, but I'll stay faithful. Instead of thinking, do some chores and get her in the mood, how about let's serve one another and sacrifice each other our whole lives long and commit ourselves to each other in such a way that sex has the context to flourish. So that's the second, exclusive devotion. Thirdly, tender sensitivity. Tender sensitivity. Notice verse 5. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and then come together again. And then he says in verse 6, Now as a concession, not as a command, I say this. So this, this is an important point. Paul is not commanding them to cease marital intimacy at any point. That there's got to be these periods in time where he's introducing like sexual fasts. He's saying you don't have to do that, but... He's talking about a specific cultural time period and context in which we're going to get into where that instruction is very warranted. We'll talk about it in just a second. But Paul's basic point is don't deprive one another. He doesn't say husband, don't deprive the wife. He doesn't say wife, don't deprive the husband. Again, he's talking about this mutuality and this, this, this mutual servanthood, and he says don't deprive each other. This word deprive could be understood as defraud or cheat. Again, highlighting the responsibility of the husband and the wife to take care of one another. However, to deprive is not to refuse. Sometimes refusal is warranted. Perhaps there's illness, or perhaps there's other issues going on. Paul calls for a tender sensitivity between husband and wife regarding what would constitute a legitimate temporal cessation of marital intimacy. And he puts kind of four guardrails on it. He says, by agreement, for a limited time, for a specific godly purpose, with the intention of reuniting. That's all he says. So let's look at these briefly, one at a time. First of all, by agreement. Any cessation of marital intimacy or sexual fast, as we might call it, is to be agreed upon by both the husband and the wife. You see this again, this mutual respectfulness for one another. You're trying to come to agreement. You're not forcing your 
will upon your husband or your wife, you're trying to arrive at a mutually agreed upon position. It's not to be unilateral imposition. It's to be a mutual agreement. Secondly, it's for a limited time. Assuming there's agreement, it should be limited in order. must not be informative. It must not be longer the extension goes, the vulnerability is introduced. This does not mean that a spouse is to for her husband or wife. Uh, just no one, uh, there's a lot of confusion about, well, they're stopping for prayer? Wait, why would that? Isn't it pleasing to God for them to do this? Then why are they praying? Are they praying about it? Or what are they praying about? Or So again, this, this could be helpful. The, the larger context of what Paul's dealing with in the Corinthian church could be helpful here. We're going to see this a couple of different times in this, in this chapter. But what I want you to see here is that one of the reasons that they were responding in this sort of polarized way to marital intimacy, specifically this ascetic tendency to avoid it, because of what Paul, Paul calls verse 26, a present crisis. Now, thanks, Paul. He might tell us what it is. He says, I think that in view of the present crisis, it's good to remain as he is. But he says that it's for this reason that it's good that some who are currently single to remain single. But some in the church were using the present crisis as a time to make some reckless lifestyle changes. Some in the church perhaps felt they needed to pray more during the present crisis. It was apparently leading some to adopt these ascetic tendencies like not having marital intimacy or separating from spouses who weren't Christians or Jews becoming Gentiles or Gentiles becoming Jews or younger men and women seeking release from their betrothal obligations. So it's this, there's some sort of panic that has set in, and people are starting to respond to things really kind of super spiritually. And there, there were, well, and you know, think about it. You remember a time where you were a young Christian? Were you a tad radical in some of the stuff you look back on? You're like, okay, I didn't necessarily need to abstain from pork chops. Or, I mean, whatever. You were just feeling like, I got to get this out of my life, get this out of my life, get this out of my life, get this out of my life. I want to be wholly devoted to the Lord. And that's a good impulse, but if it's not categorized by the Bible and being shaped by the Bible, it can go astray a lot of times. So perhaps what was happening here is that they were so spiritually minded, these ascetic people, these people, oh, I'm too, oh, marital intimacy, I'm too above that. I am basically a walking spirit. I have no desires for these things. I'm pure and holy before God and all this stuff, and I just devote myself to prayer. And Paul says, you can devote yourself to prayer and sex at the same time, right? So maybe that's what's playing into some of this as well. Because these people felt like they needed to devote themselves to prayer in the present crisis. And he's saying, yeah, okay, you need to devote yourself to prayer. Maybe you need to go to temple three, three hours a day or whatever. And you're, it's really interrupting the pattern of your life. This is not talking about a, a husband and wife saying, well, uh, dear, I haven't had my devotions yet. That's not what it's talking about, okay? It's talking about this sustained pattern of prayer and devotion to God that was interfering with the marriage, that was causing the marriage to suffer. And so Paul says, look, yeah, you can abstain, and you could even abstain for a godly purpose like prayer, but make sure it's for a limited time and by agreement. And then, fourthly, with the intention of reuniting together again. Because the ascetic tendency would have been, no, I'm leaving the marriage. I'm going to go pray. See? And he's saying, no, it's got, you're coming back. You're coming back to the marriage. 
So marital intimacy is to be normal and regular, whereas the purpose of stopping it should temporarily take place. So marital intimacy is normal and regular, Paul says, whereas the purposes for stopping it temporarily should not be normal and regular. So again, before concluding, this verse challenges us to rethink how we approach this topic as well, right? Instead of thinking men have a higher libido, we need to think in marriage one spouse may have a higher libido than another, and who that is may change over the course of the marriage. Instead of thinking women just don't have that need for sex, think if my wife has no libido, let's try to figure out why. Instead of thinking have sex every 72 hours, think I've been entrusted with my spouse's sexuality, and I'm not going to take that lightly. Instead of thinking, do not deprive your husband, think, do not deprive each other. Sex is a vital part of a healthy marriage that both husband and wife are to enjoy. And instead of thinking it's a sin to withhold sex from my spouse, think, when only one person is getting pleasure from sex, I'm depriving my spouse, even if intercourse is happening. So let me give some concluding principles, and this will summarize things. It's really, really hard to get to the gospel from a passage like this which is one of the reasons we sang the gospel so much this morning, but I do want to get to the gospel because I think, and I've already alluded to it a little bit, is that this pattern of self-giving, which is to characterize the marriage of husband and wife, is patterned after the love of Christ for us. And when the gospel gets deep into our bones, the first way that that begins to manifest itself is a servant-hearted, loving, sacrificial disposition towards our spouse. That's, that's, that's the way he's applying it and playing it out. Because Jesus gave himself up for us, we should give ourselves up for our spouses. So let me conclude with 10 quick principles, I think, about marital intimacy that we learn from this passage, and then I'll conclude in prayer. First, marital intimacy is holy and good. God encouraged intimacy between husband and wife and warns against their cessation or stopping. Secondly, Marital intimacy is both pleasurable for both husband and wife. It's both healthy and expected as each body belongs to the other. Thirdly, marital intimacy is to be guided by an other orientation where both the husband and the wife view sex as a way to serve one another. Fourthly, marital intimacy is to be regular and normal such that there is reasonable and adequate satisfaction for both the husband and the wife so that any potential vulnerability is not introduced into the marriage. Fifthly, Marital intimacy must be marked by mutual consideration and tender sensitivity. Sixth, marital intimacy is a free gift to be offered, not a bargain to be negotiated. There is to be no sexual bargaining between married couples. Well, I will if you. Marital intimacy is to be equal and reciprocal. The Bible does not give superior rights to the woman or the man. Mutual service and satisfaction is the goal. Eighth, marital intimacy is to be safe pleasing and enjoyable for both the husband and the wife. Neither should demand from the other what is harmful, painful, degrading, or distasteful to the other spouse. Ninth, marital intimacy is not the only purpose for marriage. While sexual desire should lead us into marriage, this does not mean that people who have trouble controlling themselves should marry the first person that comes along. Dealing with pressure of desire is preferable to dealing with an unhappy marriage. Tenth, marital intimacy cannot be separated from the quality of the marriage. Listening, talking, complimenting, and serving while showing each other that you value and esteem each other is the path to better marital intimacy. And we must do this all day, not just after the sun goes down. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the practical instruction of your word on some of the most tender and sensitive issues of our lives. We thank you that 
We can discuss these things as a church family because your word discusses them. Paul addressed them to a church family, and so we take them up this morning to address them in our own church family. And so, Lord, would you sanctify this to our lives and to our marriages, to those of us who are married? Lord, may this reality take shape in the way we relate to one another, giving to each other, serving one another, caring for each other, seeking not to despise or deprive one another, but to seek tender sensitivity in the ways that we seek to care for one another, both the husband and the wife. And help us to do this. Help us to pattern ourselves after that. And when we've blown it, one of the greatest ways we can show tender sensitivity is by saying, dear, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I repent. Would you forgive me? Um, husband, I'm sorry. Would you repent? Would you, I'm, I repent. Wife, I'm sorry. I repent. Lord, may that be the context in which um, our marriages flourish and that um, marital intimacy by your design becomes the, the, the covenant cement that binds us ever closer together um, for the sake of your glory, our good, and your mission in the world. So, Lord, we want to be your people. We want to reflect you. We want to honor you. Um, and so help us to honor you in this way and in this topic and, uh, and, and through the way that we live under Christ um, to your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll respond in song.